Hello, this is Guardian Daily for Tuesday the 9th of February. I'm Andy Duckworth. On today's podcast, a commander with the Met Police is jailed after falsely arresting a man and trying to cover it up. It makes him the highest-ranking British police officer to be convicted of a crime. It's Commander Desai, Westling Commander. I'm just about to arrest this person, so I need urgent... Okay, fine. I'll send him coming straight away. Thank you. Bye. Why spring is coming earlier each year. 11 days earlier, to be precise. In absolute terms, it could be quite um, quite a large change in the seasonal timing of activity. More infighting between climate scientists over a controversial claim about glaciers. They described their colleagues as sloppy. They said this mistake wasn't made by a climate scientists; it was made by the they call them sort of social scientists and biologists. Um, there's no way a glaciologist would have let that number go. And why a floating bus is making waves for all the wrong reasons in Scotland. First today, a top Scotland Yard officer is beginning a jail term for assaulting and falsely arresting a man in a petty row over just £600. Commander Ali Desai has been sentenced to four years for misconduct in a public office and for perverting the course of justice. The 47-year-old attacked a young Iraqi businessman before arresting and attempting to frame him. This case has wider implications and it's not the first time Commander Desai has been in court. We'll hear more about all that in just a moment from our crime correspondent. But first, let's hear part of the 999 calls which formed part of the evidence against him in this case. The investigation revolved around a man who demanded the police officer paid him for designing a personal website. This sparked a confrontation at a restaurant that led to the emergency services being called. Yes, I have arrested someone. Can you get me the CCR, Chief Inspector, please? You have a problem trying to identify me. Could you just tell him I am no, Commander Design? The man he was trying to frame also dialed 999. His name is Wad al-Baghdadi. I was in the Persian restaurant. Yes, and what and he just came inside and he... The police officer came in. Yeah, he told me, you've got five minutes to leave the restaurant. Otherwise, I will, I will, I will take you somewhere you don't understand. And like he's, because he's a big police officer, he's threatening me for nothing. And later in that call, Desai himself spoke on the line. Person's threatening. I need to make an arrest. I need assistance. Right, sorry, can I have your name again, sir? It's Commander Desai, Westling Commander. I'm just about to arrest this person, so I need urgent... OK, fine. Yeah, I'll send someone straight away. Thank you. Bye. Vikram Dodds, The Guardian's crime correspondent, and was in court yesterday. Uh, Vikram, was the guilty verdict in this case a surprise? Well, yesterday morning we were all in court, and when the jury came back after two hours and 31 minutes, usually if it's that quick they're going to throw a case out, especially after four and a bit weeks of evidence. It was to most... Neutral observers, a bit of a surprise. Uh, early on in the case, one of the police officers who'd pursued Ali Desai the first time he'd faced criminal charges had been in court and uh, just as an observer and said, you know, privately, I don't think he should be on trial, I don't think he's guilty. So if someone like that was thinking this case was looking a bit weak, well, it was hard to sort of uh, think that he was going to go down. But the Crown, you know, they brought in a top prosecutor, Peter Wright, who's uh, 
best known for the Suffolk uh, prostitute murders, uh, getting a result there, and also from the from uh, top tourism trials. And uh, the jury said that our verdicts are unanimous. Desai barely reacted as the verdict was delivered, which, to all intents and purposes, ends his policing career of 25 years and sees him drummed out of the force in disgrace. And this isn't the first time he's made the headlines, though, is it? It's very difficult to think of another police officer who's as high profile and who's been surrounded by controversy. The issue which he has fought with his bosses over is that of race. He was the president of the National Black Police Association. He's been an outspoken critic of the police on how far they've come in eradicating racism from the ranks. He was charismatic. He was... Uh, more intelligent than the average officer would say his supporters. His detractors would say he was a chancer and someone who used race as an excuse to cover up his deep character flaws and that finally, after years of pursuit and years of suspicion, he's got his just desserts finally. In fact, we have a clip of him speaking to this programme back in 2007 where he he talks of a, a witch hunt within the Met. I think it was about what I actually represented initially rather than myself individually and then having realised that what I represented in fact was legitimate then um, the handful of officers decided to crawl over my private life then to find out whether they could find anything in order to smear me. And can you remind us of the sort of things that you were accused of? Well, it, it, it ranged from uh, uh, obtaining a discount from my dry cleaners to... Uh, uh, being an agent for the Iranian government uh, and stealing a second-hand jumper. So really it was uh, a, quite a wide-ranging accusation which are laughable if they weren't so serious. That clip you just played was recorded just after his book came out, which was called Not One of Us. There will still be a lingering suspicion that uh, this, the timing of all of this was too neat. It came at the height of a race war in the summer of 2008 that absolutely convulsed Scotland Yard. Said against that is the verdict reached by 12 jurors who heard all the evidence. And what Scotland Yard people would say is that, you know, you might think the timing might be a bit neat for us, but we didn't do most of this investigation. It was the Independent Police Complaints Commission, and the decision was taken by the Crown Prosecution Service which is now headed by Keir Starmer, who is widely regarded as one of the finest human rights lawyers of his generation. It's Ali Desai. I thought that we would never see him in the dock again and that we'd heard the last of him, you know, back in 2003 when he's coming up at the, uh, when he was up at the Old Bailey on criminal charges and he came back from that and rose through the ranks and was uh, got to the level of a commander, which is one of the most senior officers in the entire country. It is very hard to see him coming back from this one. And, you know, he, as the judge acknowledged in his sentencing remarks, was a uh, talented, dedicated police officer with extensive community service. Uh, But this morning he's waking up in a prison cell in Wandsworth Prison as a common criminal and where he'll spend probably most of the next two years. For full details of this complex case, including a timeline of the events, go to guardian.co.uk slash crime. Still ahead on today's podcast, after a minor mishap, have hopes for Scotland's new floating bus sunk.
Guardian Daily, news and reports from around the world. Spring is now beginning 11 days earlier than usual. A new study also shows the trend of earlier springs and summers in the UK is accelerating. Scientists examined records for more than 700 species of plants and animals looking at when they flowered or reproduced. The authors say it's the largest study of long-term changes in seasonal timing ever carried out. This appears to have an impact on the food chain as organisms at the bottom are adapting quicker than their predators. The study was led by Dr Stephen Thackeray of the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology at Lancaster University. I asked him whether the 11-day shift in the start of spring is really going to make a big difference. Potentially it could. I mean, it really depends on how tightly synchronised biological events are at different levels in the food chain. And the um, what you have to bear in mind is that a, a rate of change might not seem very much when you consider a relatively short span of time. But... If uh, if we assume maybe that these changes will continue for long periods of time, in absolute terms, it could be quite um, quite a large change in the seasonal timing of activities. But what we've really got to do now is we've got to move on and try and establish what the likely consequences might be of these changes and, and see how significant they actually have been for the, uh, for the functioning of ecosystems in, in the UK. And what does this mean in terms of climate change? Does it mean that we're having longer, warmer springs and summers? Well, it's, it certainly is very tempting to conclude that. As yet, we haven't directly linked our findings to warming trends or climate trends across the UK. Um, certainly, other scientific studies would suggest, firstly, that we have seen warming in the UK over this time period and there are other studies besides those which show us that there appears to be a link between the timing of these kinds of events and and temperatures but we haven't made that link explicitly yet in this study. Now the one thing I can say at this stage is that there appears to be quite a large-scale coherent pattern in our data in that many of the taxa, the majority of them, are showing earlier seasonal timing and that there seems to be a pattern of accelerating change that's apparent across freshwater, marine and terrestrial systems. And I think seeing a pattern that's coherent across such large scales may well suggest that a large-scale driver like climate change is responsible for many of the trends that we see in the data. But other factors too could interact with those changes in climate to produce the, uh, the variations that we're seeing. So it's early days yet really to say anything conclusive about the role of climate climate in driving these changes. But that's obviously a priority for future research on these data, and I hope we can move on to that analysis quite soon. Dr Stephen Thackeray. More infighting between climate scientists has been revealed by The Guardian. Glaciologists working on the UN panel on global warming have hit out at colleagues from other disciplines for introducing a mistake about melting glaciers into a landmark 2007 report. To explain all, our environment correspondent David Adam. Although most people think of the IPCC as one organisation, it is made up of three very distinct, what they call, working groups. And the first working group is uh, all the really heavy climate scientists, and they look at the state of the physical basis for climate change. And they're the guys who came up with the high-profile claims or high-profile conclusions that global warming is unequivocal and that 
it's uh, very likely down to human activity. Um, now, the Glacier claim, which we're now uh, talking about as a mistake, was in Working Group 2. Now, that was a very separate report produced by a completely separate bunch of people at a different time. It was published several weeks later, um, and that looks at the impacts of climate change, so what might happen to rainfall, what might happen to crops, what might happen to glaciers. Um, and essentially... The guys who produced the first report are really cross with the people who produced the second report because they say it's a really sloppy mistake, it wasn't checked by a glaciologist, and it undermines all of their work, which as yet no one has found a problem with. You've been looking into this more closely and speaking to those involved, and they're using some pretty strong language. They are. I mean, I, I only spoke to the people in Working Group 1 because those are the people who I heard were unhappy with this, and I contacted them all and... Um, I gave them the option to comment, but I wouldn't reveal their names. So some of them were pretty forthright. Um, I mean, not everyone thought this, but there were significant numbers of people who were pretty unhappy. They described their colleagues as sloppy. They said this mistake wasn't made by climate science. It was made by the, they call them sort of social scientists and biologists. Um, there's no way a glaciologist would have let that number go. Um, they just didn't have time to check the working, basically, of, of the non-experts. Um, and and they're pretty unhappy that they have been maligned by association. And this throws up some issues um, brought about by the, uh, the UEA email row as well. Um, the infighting between scientists and 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 also the the position of the head of the IPCC, Rajendra Pachauri. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think we should treat the two things separately. I know it's tempting to conflate them, but I think they are different and they have different implications. Um, the IPCC. Um, Rajendra Pachari is under fire because there are some allegations that he knew about this glacier mistake before Christmas and he didn't do anything about it. Other people say that it's just a mistake and he should uh, he should take the blame for it. He, he won't even apologise for it. So so he's under quite a lot of pressure. Um, the, the, the scientists who I spoke with was, were split, really. I mean, I only got a handful of responses on this, whether he should resign or not. Some said that uh, he shouldn't, it's not his fault, you know, um, uh, if there was a mistake in their working group, they wouldn't expect him to resign. It's nobody's fault but their own. Um, and others said, well, he is the head of the organisation. He's happy to take the credit, so maybe he should he should fall on his sword. David Adam, and you can read more at environmentguardian.co.uk. I'm Jessica Shepherd, and today on educationguardian.co.uk, MPs call for radical reform to the way that teachers are trained. Secondary school teachers should no longer learn the profession on undergraduate courses, only on postgraduate courses. And the minimum qualifications to those allowed to teach should be raised to a 2-2, they say. University applications are up by a fifth, we hear from UCAS. And behaviour problems, Rachel Williams reports on a secondary school that's found the trick to good behaviour. Fewer rules. All that on educationguardian.co.uk. A launch party for a £700,000 floating coach had to be cancelled yesterday after it had a little mishap on a dummy run on a Scottish river. The service from one side of the Clyde to the other was grounded after the much-hyped Amphibus was forced off-river. The Guardian's Scotland correspondent Severin Carell takes up the story. Well, no, it was hardly ideal for Brian Souter or for Stagecoach, but basically the the vessel's been tested in Rotterdam Harbour for a couple of weeks and apparently had done absolutely fine. It was Rotterdam Harbour, as you may know, is one of the busiest in Europe and it had done very, very well surfing across the bow waves of various tugs and cargo vessels. But when it got to the Clyde, it had done two 
circuits that had crossed over from Renfrew to Yoko and back again and done this quite happily. But I think on the third attempt, it had gone up onto the slipway and onto the tarmac on the, the banks of the Clyde. And as it did so, there, apparently there was either some kind of clunk or grind or whatever else. And then they looked underneath and discovered that one of the rear airbags, which keeps the bus afloat when it's going over the river, had actually disconnected. And it had, it's part of the suspension. And as a consequence, the bus was sagging. And I think the suspension was dragging somewhat. So they had to drive it off and it drove perfectly well apparently I mean there was no issues about that and I had to take it into a garage and try and find a way of getting the airbag reattached uh, stagecoach insists that's been done and it was just what they describe as a technical glitch well uh, well a minor blip as you say and uh, they say it's going to be back in the water today but what's an amphibus needed for what's wrong with a good old-fashioned bridge or a ferry well as you know, the Clyde is quite a long river, and on the no north bank and the south bank, there are large communities that would like to be able to, you know, cross over with relative ease. Now, there are bridges across the Clyde. There are quite a number of them nearby. There's the Erskine Bridge. There's the Clyde Tunnel as well. But at the end of March, there's one of the city's most famous ferries, the Renfrew Ferry, which is a very small thing that just does a couple of hundred metres crossing in only four minutes, is going to be discontinued. It, it's failed to make any money. It actually loses £400,000 a year. And when it's quiet, can have as few as four people crossing on it. So what Stagecoach say is the Amphibus actually offers a much, much more attractive and flexible way of crossing the, the, the Clyde. You don't have to spend tens of millions of pounds building a new bridge and new access roads. And this bus simply will ply a very long route, say, from Brayhead Shopping Centre on the south side of the Clyde all the way back over the, to the north to Clyde Bank. And if anything, it just ignores the river, it just swims across and that's it. So what are people saying after this uh, little accident, should we call it? Is, it? is it good or bad publicity for the new service? Well, it's curious, isn't it? I mean, Brian Souter, the chief executive and co-founder of Stagecoach is very, very clever at his publicity. He knows fine well what will make headlines and what won't. I think that a lot of people in Scotland are actually probably a bit reticent about this. It hasn't made, if you pardon the pun, great waves today. I think people are just looking and watching with some bemusement and just to see whether it actually comes off. Because as things currently stand, these are just technical trials. Stagecoach admit that actually they've got no contract with Strathclyde Passion to Transport, who are the main, the region's main uh, public transport agency. They have got no subsidy. They haven't even decided whether or not it's commercially viable. So I think there's probably a few people are just going to watch and wait. And then if it does work, then it may well be fantastically successful. However, you may need to take your seasickness tablets. Severin Corral. That's it for today's Guardian Daily. Please leave your comments on the blog. You'll find that at guardian.co.uk slash guardiandaily. While you're there, make sure you subscribe for free, of course. You can follow us on Twitter as well. Search for Guardian Daily. Today's podcast was produced by Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm Andy Duckworth. Thanks for listening.